introduction. Claims-based identity and Windows identity foundation. So why are we bothering to do this uh, in the first place? Well, traditional way of uh, authentication people kind of uh, betrays uh, an um, suboptimal uh, set of solutions. How can I you know, put this down? Let's say that uh, non-federation or non-standard ways of uh, handling identity tends to uh, impose to the developer, and I remind you, here we are talking mainly about the developer, impose to the developer to know details about how the authentication takes place, how it is actually implemented, which typically leads to fragility of a system because uh, that's something that can change because uh, sometimes uh, this relies on the environment and in a world in which there is the cloud, of course, we often have to change environment without notice. And also these impose a heavy burden in terms of learning APIs that are specific to one uh, method or to one protocol or to one credential type. And of course, that doesn't scale very well. So that's why I like to say that your applications are prisoners because uh, Today, authentication is actually a constraint. The choices that you make in terms of authentication are constraints. Can you all guys understand my accent, or do you want me to slow down? So how many of you want me to slow down? Nobody. Perfect. How many of you want me not to have an Italian accent? <laughs> no, I know. I, I wish sometimes to have something to turn it off, but I can't. I can only enunciate. So for making more practical the constraints that I described before, let's just dissect how um, authentication in traditional fashion takes place. How many of you are familiar with ASP.NET? A lot. For the ones who aren't, this is the typical arrangement of one ASP.NET application, so website, which has something to protect, let's say, this page. Typically, you have one login page which will interpose itself between the user and the resource and will stay there until successful authentication takes place. So here you have your user which tries to access the resource, meets the login page and code, which takes care of performing authentication which very often is just a matter of understanding if a user is a returning user. Did I already see this guy? And one first thing we have to mention is the code here will be dependent on the type of credential we use. If you use username and password, you may use the membership provider API. How many of you are familiar with a membership API? Thanks. I'll keep doing that uh, so that I'm sure that you are alive, <laughs> otherwise you do so. Now, that's also useful for me to understand how much of what I'm saying you guys understand. If instead you are using a client SSL, then you have to use the API that goes into the request, extracts the certificate, and you need to know the structure of a certificate, look up the subject, and somehow do something. And of course, uh, if instead you are using Active Directory, maybe you have to do nothing, but then you are dependent on this infrastructure. You see my point. The code here is strongly dependent on the credentials. 
if the credentials change, the code has to change. If it changes in a way that is uh, outside the scope of the skills of a developer, the developer needs to get up to speed. So we like to represent these as a constraint. How many of you have more than uh, seven passwords on the internet? A pretty decent amount. Well, I, I think I am uh, around 20. So, <laughs> and uh, all different, of course. Like uh, reusing the same password across websites, it's cheating, does not count. It's just a very bad idea. Anyway, a typical uh, side effect of uh, this approach is that your application also owns the credential store. Let's say that uh, it's not enough to just use the API and verify the credential uh, and the protocol. I also need to compare it to something. When you do that, typically you impose to the user to have yet another password, which not fun as we know it. And also you buy a big pain in the neck for you because uh, the user can lose the password. So you need to have something in place for reprovisioning. Or uh, somebody may forget the laptop that they are using for developing in the backseat of a cab in Bangkok. And then uh, you need to print all those letters and send it to all your customers saying, eh, you know, all your data has been lost, so now we have to start over. So having your credential store is uh, not fun. But at least all this is focused in one place, because uh, this is like the funnel for which everybody must go. So if I have to make changes, it's painful, but I know where to do it. However, once authentication took place successfully, that actually gets to the fun part, which is authorization. So the sheer fact that the user has been recognized does not necessarily imply that the user can see this document, this page, this image, call this service, whatever you want to authorize. As a result, you need to have code here which take care of that. And how do you decide that the user can do something? Well, typically, you have uh, your user attribute store. Can you guys from the back see the lower part of the slide? Yeah, I'm sorry. Normally, the room is more. They say it's designed to fill the entire place. The user attribute store can be infrastructure, so your directory. can be a custom attribute store. If you are especially lucky, it can be both. Let's say that something is kept here, something is kept here. And of course, uh, here there are all the various implications of provisioning, as we know. So imagine that this website is a dating website. And I want to ensure that uh, my user is actually single. So first, how do you gather that information? That can be pretty costly. Like, what do you do? You organize uh, interviews? Like, that's kind of uh, expensive, especially if you want to scale a business at the internet level. And also the information, every time you save it somewhere, has the potential of becoming stale. The guy can come in, give the interview, convince you that he's single, and as he walks out, uh, go to the bathroom, change into a very elegant dress, and get married in the afternoon. So in the morning, you get one information. In the evening, it's already stale. So of course, uh, owning user attribute stores is not fun. Also, it has the same problem as credential, liability. And it's actually worse, because credential impersonation is bad, but you can revoke personally identifiable information 
is uh, a terrible thing to lose. Also, the other interesting part is uh, authorization can be sprinkled everywhere in your code because uh, as this is a funnel, so it's a clear entry point, here I may literally litter all my code with authorization uh, or something that has the semantic of authorization may not be easy to recognize as such everywhere in my code. Four years ago, before becoming the identity guy, I was working for pushing the entire WCF, WF card space platform. I was working with uh, one of these companies that is uh, Fortune 5. I cannot really say the company, but still. Both guys have subsidiaries all over the world. And uh, they had one table that was used for code like this, but they could not, for the life of them, track down all these. Because every subsidiary wrote their own little version, and they were all relying on data here. So every single time they tried to do database consolidation or schema consolidation here, as soon as they detach the most trivial of elements, they would get a call from Nairobi saying, guys, what have you done? You are the usual corporate. Now nothing works. You changed something you didn't tell us. So I don't know if four years after that they managed to actually track down all those or if they are still prisoners of their own uh, system. Anyway, this is a very thorny situation. We have a question. I was just wondering if we're trying to get to the point that we're talking about the federation, the federation problem. Uh, so what the problem you're describing is actually several places of authentication are happening. Um, where I've written the login about ASP or the, the page one, that's a code that I've controlled, but also the operating system is authenticating the web server. Maybe authenticating them going through a J2E layer that may be authentication happening there in the app server as well. So there's multiple places where authentication may be happening, not just the application that I've written. So I was trying to understand where this problem space really is. So your question is? Okay, so the question is about uh, what is the level that we are using for describing this scenario. So this one is uh, a um, representative of the equivalence class of architecture in which the application or the owner in general of the business function has uh, to perform the authentication. Then the fact that this stuff happens here or it happens somewhere else but is still tied to the business owner, or is it somehow tied to the entire system? Let's say that uh, here I take a dependency on actually the type of authentication that was made is relevant. Then this one is one specific canonical, uh, very representative case, but of course we can tweak it in many different ways. We can make it bigger, make it smaller, make it at a department level, make it on the, web, on the public website. So are you with me so far? That is awesome. All right. So all these is actually okay if, as we say in Italian, you are bowling in your growth. That's to say that uh, this system is something that you own completely. That's to say that is uh, something in which you are the one taking decisions. So maybe those constraints can be kind of uh, like harder to deal with, expensive to deal with, but ultimately if you have a full control of the entire system, who cares? Like, if you want to do things the hard way, 
feel free to do so. Or maybe you simply have a strong uh, hypothesis about this application, like you know that this application will never change. If it has to change, I'll do a new one. So anyway, if your system is yours, you can do whatever. However, as I mentioned before, in today's world, we have uh, this uh, new big uh, playground, which is uh, the cloud, Mark. And uh, how many of you today are uh, considering uh, moving things uh, to the cloud? Four, five, six. If I wait more, I'm sure that we'll get a seventh. Seventh, perfect. So seventh over, like, slightly more than half, which is pretty good for everybody else. This may seem something like exotic and for uh, early adopters and similar, but a few years along the line, that may no longer be the case. Here there's the classic example of, uh, at the beginning of a century, everybody who was doing uh, manufacturing, like if you had your great idea for a startup, at the time it was like horseshoe making, for example, great startup. And uh, when you would uh, bring uh, your uh, business plan, uh, your uh, angel investors, or whatever they were called at the time, as a capital expense, uh, you also had uh, to keep into account your power plant. Everybody making manufacturing made their own power plant. This was just the business model at the time. And it was crazy to think that you could like, buy electricity from a central source instead of buying pieces when uh, your uh, generator breaks. And instead, in 10 years, the uh, economical advantage of buying just electricity instead of having this big capital expense up front was so overwhelming that uh, like 70% of the companies were buying electricity from central place. So move the same idea here. Today, yeah, I can go to the cloud. I can have my in, uh, data center. Who cares? Maybe tomorrow, once uh, this guy is well established, Having to have your own data center may be the counterpart of today building your own power plant, which means that you are out of market. So today you can like sit comfortably and say, yeah, yeah, he's blabbering about the cloud because of course his marketing told him to do so, which is true, by the way. But uh, this may actually end up in a situation in which if you are unable to take advantage of this, you actually have a significant market disadvantage. So what we are saying can be tragically real in a short. And what I'm saying is, let's say that you need to take this application and have one instance of that in the cloud. And let's say that you want to minimize, of course, the cost. So you take this as is, and you just deploy it here, assuming that you can, of course. So you have it there. And now you try to use it. And what happens? Your user tries to get in here, but of course, the code here will try to access credential store and credential types. The credential types may not be possible even here. Like if you were using Kerberos, may, you would already have uh, an issue here. But let's just assume you were using a username and password. So what do you guys propose to solve this problem? How can I actually enable this instance to um, authenticate users? I'm sorry? Passive token. So a proposal is a passive token. We are very, very, very far from tokens. What are tokens? Here is like, I have a username and password here. 
I moved the code in here. I just want it to work. Passive certificate, but we are using username and password. Yes, sir. Network level access. Okay, that is an, uh, a good proposal. Of course, it has uh, its costs. Let's say that if this company doesn't have like a public presence, that means establishing a DMZ, opening halls, stuff like that. So, good idea, expensive to apply. Yes, sir. It's an interesting proposal. So changing the, the authentication system from uh, whatever it's using uh, here to something that works in the cloud, which is good, but is uh, like a kind of like restating the problem. Like I still have uh, a set of users here, and I need to enable them here, regardless of the system that I'm using. So the classic way of doing this, the brute force of doing this is, let me actually use our little system is a four-letter word, duplication. Typically, people take this store and just make it available here, simply because it's dramatically cheaper. Rather than uh, piercing the holes in the firewall or uh, making major restructuring, they just uh, make uh, duplication in here, which is, uh, of course, for you guys that know about Federation, a horrible, horrible idea. Because uh, Keeping those guys synchronized uh, is uh, kind of hard. And also, it puts you at the mercy of a guy who owns this, who may not change this on time, and similar. So the, the example that I like to do in this context is uh, something that happened a few years ago. I don't know if you followed the news. There was this guy who had a, 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 a drug-resistant pneumonia. Like he had this uh, very bad form of pneumonia, and it was uh, simply drug resistant. And uh, he was banned from traveling. It was actually suggested, please do not travel, because uh, when you go on the plane, the air circulation like, uh, cannot isolate you from the pilots or from anybody else, so it's guaranteed that you infect a lot of people. But this guy absolutely wanted to do the, his um, honeymoon in Italy, who can blame him, America. And so he went and he left, and he went to Italy. So he got to Italy, started his honeymoon, but started feeling uh, worse and worse. So uh, and, uh, he contacted the embassy saying, guys, I'm a sick I'm in a foreign country. Nobody speaks English, so what should I do? They said, absolutely, do not get on a, tra on a uh, plane. Check in uh, on the closest uh, facility. And, uh, and the guy, not uh, trusting the Italian hospitals, and again, I'm not sure if I should blame him or, uh, but anyway, he, uh, wa he actually wanted to come back to the States, which implied going on a plane. So he was on the no-fly list of the U.S. Uh, airlines. So what did he do? He went to Canada, to uh, Air Canada or some, some, some Canadian uh, airline, flew to Canada, and then walked through the border. So that's kind of similar. Not exactly the same, because uh, like uh, different entities and similar. But you can see the point. Like if you have uh, information at one level, and you duplicate somewhere, or uh, anyway, the other uh, party is not uh, timely in actually updating things, 
then bad things can happen. Let's say elevation of privileges, uh, like uh, if this uh, is uh, like uh, one uh, disgruntled employee gets the provision from here because he leaves, and then comes here, and before it gets the provision, buys uh, 5,000 photocopiers, have them delivered to his former boss. Good transaction, because uh, he was uh, still here. So issues. And of course, here is potentially worse, because uh, it really a typical place for uh, authorization or for attributes in general is the directory. And uh, typically, unless you pierce a hole, which is possible but dangerous, like uh, accessing your directory from outside unless you are very, very strict can be dangerous, then again, here you have a problem. So what do we need? We need something which kind of like gets rid of those ties and somehow help us to make this application independent from the details of implementation. So here I have my classic little fable for showing that it doesn't have to be that. Let's say that in real life we do manage identity authentication, authorization in a very seamless way without the need of having all those chains, but you guys are experts, so I'll go through that very, very fast. So let's assume that you have our guy who's very bored in the emptiness of this big slide, and so when you're bored, what do you do? You seek comfort in alcohol. Now, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not. I absolutely do not advocate that. But you have to admit it may happen. So let's say that this guy finds a bar and uh, tries to get a beer. But being completely featureless, it's really, really difficult to understand if he has the correct age for being allowed to have a beer. So typically, he asks for a beer, and he gets asked back for a personal ID, picture ID. I find it interesting that here in the States, uh, you use uh, a driving license, but you refuse to have a personal identification card. It's like a real ID, everybody, oh, no, real ID, the government will know about me. And then uh, I heard, I'm not sure if, it, uh, if it's true, that there are driving licenses which says that you cannot drive and are released only for identification purposes. <laughs> but anyway, let's say that uh, our friend is especially unlucky and his driving license is expired. So it goes back to the department of driving license, ask for a renewal, and uh, the Department of Licensing does whatever is necessary for authenticating the user. That's to say that uh, it will have its own criteria for understanding if the guy is entitled to get this. Like this could be like looking up on uh, files, finding him, snapping another picture, verifying if his eyesight is still pretty good. Well, eyesight. Okay, otherwise it would be unrealistic. But let's say that everything goes well and our friend actually gets a copy of his driving license. And so finally he can corroborate his request with a document saying, can I have a beer? And by the way, I am X. At that point, the transaction is successful. I said successful. So we closed the circuit. Now, hopefully not very often, but uh, I'm sure that uh, it must have happened to you at a certain point in life. 
Like, you know how it works. That's not rocket science. And yet, uh, here we just performed a fairly complex authentication authorization transaction with very little ties, because uh, this could be the first and the last time that the user comes here. And yet, uh, it worked. Here, we picked the department of licensing, but we could have used like passport, we could have used whatever else. Like, this is a very loose system, but it's also pretty effective because, uh, apart of the occasional uh, big, big problem, in general, the system works. Like, uh, we fly, we go around, we buy cars, we buy alcohol. So, this system works. How does it work? The key in here is we externalized authentication. We didn't have to verify the age of our user ourselves. That would have implied getting the blood of a guy, putting it in a centrifuge, and estimating the age. If that would happen, much less people would drink, I can assure you. But uh, also, the beer would be much more expensive, because I think of a provisioning process. And instead, like, uh, we don't even think about it. Like, there is a some other entity which has a, a strong business reason for verifying the information we need about the user, why not relying on that? That's what we do. Like we crawl through trust relationships, we say. And then that's what makes the entire thing possible. The fact that we have a document. A document is something which is hard to reproduce, in theory at least, and that uh, clearly shows that it's coming from a certain provider of that document. And it caches the information that we need about the user. Like, we are not doing anything dynamic. There is no direct communication with them. It would be harder to uh, arrange. Instead, with uh, this little rectangle of plastic, we actually cache the information about the user. And uh, that information is in real time, because I didn't have any previous knowledge about that. And it's also like scoped, because uh, I just have the info that I need. Because uh, according to the context, I picked the right one. So there is no reason for us not to do the same online. So here we have the same application that we had before. And in identity jargon, in Microsoft identity jargon, since we have our nice ping uh, list here, you'd probably call it service provider. Here, we call our application a relying part. We'll see that in a moment. And here, we have all the necessary that we use for authentication. However, usually, we have other entities, which in our speak, we call identity providers, which typically already know about the user that you are interested into. If you're writing SharePoint, you don't actually care about authenticating people one by one. You can rely on Active Directory that already knows them. If you are Exchange, the same. Like uh, when you create a mailbox, you don't create it together with a user unless it's part of your provisioning. Like the user belongs to the directory. It's not something that you put uh, in here. So what does that mean that the identity provider knows about the user? That in practical terms means that they have uh, the credential store in there. So we don't need to worry about that. Having the credential store means uh, that it's their problem 
to actually make authentication happen. Because, of course, that, uh, the account uh, somehow entails the credentials that you use. And also, but not always, but usually the attributes of a user live more or less in the same place, or at least have the same business owner. So again, the directory is the most natural way of thinking of that, but uh, if you want to think of that at the business level, these could be like uh, the set of users of uh, one partner of yours, of one reseller of yours, or if this is an enterprise, again, your directory. So they have everything that we need, but it doesn't make a big difference for us because uh, how do we tap into that knowledge? Well, how many of you are familiar with uh, service orientation? One, two, three, four, five, six. So long story short, the idea behind service orientation is I take a system, I find the various uh, capabilities, functionalities of that system, and uh, I facade them with one interface uh, which allows them to reuse that capability across the board so that I don't have to rebuild it every time. Well, that's exactly what is happening here. Like, instead of having to do my own thing, there is already something in my system that has this capability. <coughs> so all I needed to do is to slap in front of it an interface which allow me to use it. A security token service is a special flavor of web service, so actually ratified in standards and similar, which can actually expose the capability of authenticating people in a platform and protocol independent fashion. So if I take those, those uh, resources, the capability of those resources of authenticating people, I slap in front of it a facade, then I can now involve this guy within one transaction whenever I need authentication. So this is just one service, exactly like the printing service is something that allows me to print, or uh, the provisioning service is something that I use for provisioning, and whatever else. It's just one service like everything else. Well, of course, more important than everything else because, you know, we are biased, right? But anyway, so how can we actually use these to our advantage? Well, this code is no longer necessary. Now we want, instead of uh, authentication code, we want something that lives in front of your application and that can actually enforce authentication elsewhere. That's to say that like, we can intercept calls to our function, verify that if the call is not authenticated, deciding who is supposed to take the burden of authenticating the user, calling the facade, making authentication happen, and then finally going ahead. So here we have back our user who hopefully is now past his hangover. We try to call the relying party. We are not authenticated. Here there will be some policy that says, go to authenticate to that identity provider. So at this point, we will actually authenticate with whatever system this guy decides. Like uh, the way in which authentication here happens does not have any influence to this system. I don't know, and I may even not care a lot of times. If successful authentication is made, we render what we call a security token. How many of you know what is a security token? 
good, vast majority. A security token is an artifact, typically XML, but sometimes also binary, which represents the successful outcome of one authentication operation. Let's say that if a user was able to authenticate, I create this artifact, which typically is digitally signed. Let's say that cannot be altered without breaking this digital signature, which basically asserts that the user successfully authenticated. The signature which is put in here is typically done with a public key with a public key system. Let's say that uh, imagine that this identity provider is a website. It is uh, using SSL, so HTTPS. How many of you know what is HTTPS? So the one that do not raise a hand uh, means that you don't know what is HTTPS? You know? You know. Perfect, thanks. Now, because uh, if you're... No, because uh, if you know, it, it's time-dependent. Like, if I'm not looking in that moment, then I'm lost. Thanks. So for doing HTTPS, you need a certificate. A certificate is just a public key which corresponds to a private key. So if I'm using a private key for signing this, everybody who knows that my public certificate is X will know that this token is coming from me and me only, because I'm the only owner of a private key and the only one who can actually perform this key. So having this is the moral counterpart of the document from the Department of Licensing. Actually, better, because uh, unless you did uh, some awesome advance in quantum computing, you cannot forge this. If you did that, just tell me, and we can enjoy the beautiful weather, because uh, our industry would kind of collapse. But uh, for the time being, uh, we can be sure that the RSA is solid, and so this signature cannot be compromised. So anybody who sees this knows that this guy successfully authenticated. This property is uh, very nice, and it actually allows us to add claims to the security token. So whatever I write in this token has uh, two properties. Cannot be changed because there is the signature, and uh, definitely comes from whoever made the signature because uh, of the property one. So whatever I write here about the user will be definitely coming from here. So anybody who believes that I am competent in saying certain things about the user will automatically believe into those. So in other words, that actually makes that information about the user automatically not stale and automatically as trustworthy as the entity who signs that is, which is great because uh, now I have info about the user which bring the info that I need, but also brings a criteria for deciding if I believe that information. So that is what a claim is. A claim is a, an assertion about, the, about a subject made from another subject. The fact that it's made from another subject is what makes it different from one attribute. Like this user can have an attribute, like the name of a birth date and so on. When does that attribute become a claim? This is important. When I can actually say who is asserting that attribute? So that it makes something that I can believe or not believe. Well, an attribute is instead something like absolute, like regardless of these considerations. This is incredibly powerful because it allows me to cache that information here on the fly just for this transaction. I don't need to save anything in here. I can just get this on the fly. And in fact, once the token is ready, I just send it here. 
I have all the intelligence for doing the boring and complicated stuff. Canonicalization, signature checking, decryption, uh, check expiration, check for duplication, whatever my protocol entails can be hidden here, which is outside of the application. And here I can even do things like uh, deciding if I want to authorize you, even before you hit the application in itself. Once this layer is happy, I can actually extract what I want, but to say, the questions that I had about my user are now answered by those guys, the claims, and those are presented to the application in completely independent fashion. That's to say that uh, from those guys, I will not know the technology that was used uh, for making this exchange, like the protocol and similar. And above all, I will have no part in managing credential, managing authentication, and similar. If I want, I can give indications, like uh, dear identity provider, when you authenticate, please use uh, at least smart cards, because this is an important authentication uh, operation. But what's important is I don't need to know the details. I can influence the process, but I'm no longer forced to learn about all the details that uh, are underlying. And now that I have this stuff, I can actually, first, I could move some of those guys outside, but never mind. Let's say that we keep all of those here. Now I can finally just refer to those here. So I have no external dependency. And that means that if I get this guy in a bubble, there is nothing that pierces the bubble. This is completely independent. And as a result, I can actually get this guy. And if I want, move it wherever I want, including the cloud. So finally, with this system, we actually broke the dependency on uh, infrastructure, the dependency on uh, architecture, and similar. So I trust that uh, at least 75% uh, of you knew about this. How about the next 25? Is that clear? Yes, sir. There are no silly questions. The question is, uh, sure, but uh, we still have to talk with the identity provider. And so, uh, for example, in the case in which the identity provider is Active Directory, I have to change it when I go to the cloud. The answer is, we don't need to change when we go to the cloud. Because think of uh, how the uh, interaction happened. I landed in here, and I was not authenticated, and I just got redirected here. So. Assuming that this guy is like an employee of this uh, company which has that Active Directory, and here there is the browser. Okay, so assuming they're inside the firewall and they have access to Active Directory. See, so at this point, I can move this guy wherever I want as long as between the user and the identity provider there is access. Let's say that uh, the address of the identity provider is network addressable from the point of view of a user, then everything works. Like, nothing changes at this level. 
At this level, he may send you to one internet address that he itself is unable to access. But only the user here is there. Of course, if you want the user to be mobile, let's say that the Active Directory is in here and the user is, I don't know, at the customer place, then you need this address to be available outside the firewall, which is possible as well. Let's say that you can just have like uh, your DMZ, you can have a proxy, and if you use ADFS, this actually comes out of the box, like the proxy out of the box. And Great. And the ability to trust in any provider, what's required to set that up? That in the next episode. Like, uh, the question is, uh, what is the ability about, uh, what is the ability needed for uh, setting trust to the identity provider? We'll see that uh, in details uh, slightly later. Thanks. Yes, sir. The question is, do you need to store anything on the application side? And the, the answer is, in general, you may not need it. In practice, there are situations in which you need it. But uh, the difference between the former uh, model and this model is that now you are not forced to. If your business model requires you to remember things about the user that you cannot obtain from the identity provider, which is perfectly possible, you may have a profile here, then you also need to save something. Or uh, for forensic reasons, you may want to save like a trail of what's going on. But apart from that, you are no longer forced to do that. Exactly. Outside of service. <laughs> That's a secret. Yes. Yes, sir. The question is, uh, is there an expiration date on the claims? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, this afternoon, we'll see how a token is made well beyond what you would find comfortable, I'm sure. Like, it will be boring. And uh, we will see the uh, expiration, that there are expiration times and uh, ways of dealing with both expiration time of a token and also of the session, which are related but not the same. Yes, sir. So you pointed out that those claims are, are essentially part of the security token because that's how I verify where they came from. But one of the scenarios that we're dealing with now is say, uh, I want to be a reliant party to the user's belongs to a bicycle club. And that, that bicycle club gives him some other claim, and they also use their driver's license as the identifier for that. But those are essentially two different um, claim providers. So the question is, uh, how do we deal uh, with uh, multiple sources of claims? We are going to touch on those scenarios just after lunch, so just for helping your digestion, it will be uh, useful. But uh, one thing is uh, chaining those, or somehow uh, having those as part of a multi-step. Uh, it will be clearer this afternoon. But anyway, there are situations in which you have a group of claims uh, uh, on different uh, uh, providers, and those providers are at the same level. However, all this flow is based on authentication. Let's say that the user is or the user that belongs to the bicycle club or the other user. The fact that the, user, the two accounts are uh, pointing to the same entity is like uh, something that is, uh, I would say, outside of the scope of these. And in fact, uh, we usually take steps for making sure that uh, 
automatically you cannot tell that it's the same user. So we'll see that there are ways of chaining providers so that you can get the claims from one, and before relying them to the application, you can enrich the context, adding claims, processing claims, and similar. But the situation in which you described it, in which I have a set of claims from one, set of claims for the other, I need to choose the user that I want. Let's say that I'm outsourcing authentication, and only one of the two will perform the authentication for me. And we can get in more details during the break. All right, so I'll push forward, or at least I'll try. So you may have guessed Windows Identity Foundation is what makes this possible on the Windows platform. It is an extension to the Windows framework, and you'll hear ad nauseum about it in the next two days. One convenient way of using your Active Directory as an identity provider, or also as another role, as we'll see later, is ADFS v2. ADFS v2 is just, just a server role, which you download out of band, you install on one of the servers on your directory, and you gain the ability of uh, talking standards, open standards, from your domain controller. Your domain controller normally just talks Kerberos, and now instead you can teach it to talk SAML protocol, WS Trust, WS Federation, and various others. It's a very like, uh, nice shortcut from the brick and mortar world to the claims-based world because it's uh, almost literally a checkbox. So it's very, very easy, very powerful. You said chain passwords? Change passwords. Change. OK. So the question is, how come with ADFS I cannot do provisioning? OK. Right. So the question specifically is about changing password and why can't we do it from ADFS too? And the answer is, ADFS2 is about what happens on the wire. Let's say that both Windows Identity Foundation and Active Directory Federation services, if I can backtrack a moment, are all about what happens in this black space. What happens inside is taken care of by something else. For example, ADFS2 is one feature of Active Directory. Active Directory gives you the capability of changing passwords. So if ADFS would have that capability as well, then you'd be like overlapping with a function that uh, you already have in Active Directory. So ADFS uh, is not trying to be an end-to-end -end solution. It is uh, the, like, the capping that you put on top of Active Directory, which give you those capabilities. And uh, I can understand why you'd like that, but uh, that's not something that ADFS2 would do. Like uh, if you couple that with uh, for a front identity manager, all of a sudden you have all those nice capabilities. Then, of course, there is a license, while ADFS is completely free. All right. So let me push forward. Otherwise, uh, we'll have to skip your break. And of course, that would be 
very sad, right? So I will not make the demo because uh, it's really very easy. And I'll just give you a, a quick on Windows Data Foundation. So basically, it's just a programming model. Like uh, those are uh, extension DLLs that you add to the .NET framework, both the 3.5 and 4.0, so it works on both. And it's an object model which is perfectly well integrated with uh, um, .NET. But to say that uh, .NET has a model for dealing with identity, and we just extend that. We don't create something completely new. It makes a, a common object model for ASP.NET and WCF for the ones among you that uh, did both. You know that is usually not the case. They are very different animals. Instead, now, you pretty much do the same modulo hosting environment. We do as much as we can in the configuration, because that's, uh, that's a good thing to do, because we outsource to the admins after we made our deployment. And you guessed it, it's the same programming model on-premises and in the cloud. And that is actually true. It's exactly the same. Then, how many of you worked with ADFS 1? Uh, 1. So you may remember that uh, establishing uh, an, uh, a federation relationship it was not exactly a walk in the park. Like, you needed to put some effort in that. Well, now, thanks to the fact that we make uh, heavier reliance on metadata, creating relationships is... Uh, straightforward. It's, in the best case, just a wizard. Five clicks, and you're done. You don't have to see thumbprints. You don't have to see angle brackets. You don't have to see URIs. Like uh, every part of a system describes itself using standard format documents, and we just consume it right out of the box. And you'll have multiple occasions to see how easy it is from Visual Studio. Right click, right click and just connect one identity provider and use it without seeing any of the underlying details, which is great. If you have a lot of lonely nights and you like uh, to do interesting work, you can even write your own custom SDS. Windows Identity Foundation is, in fact, like uh, the packetization of the classes that we used for ADFS 2.0. And in fact, if you want, you can do the same. You can build your own STS. We take care of the protocol, so you no longer have to worry about low-level details if you tried to write an STS long time ago. However, you still have to worry about doing things that are available, secure, scalable, robust, and so on, the usual uh, services. And for that, like, we can't help you. Actually, we can. We built ADFS too. If so, for some reason, instead you want to do your own, just know that uh, those things are on you. So very, very quickly, the object model, and then uh, I'll let you go for coffee. How many of you ever used the uh, iPrincipal? Some. So iPrincipal is the way in which you deal with identity in .NET. Identity of a caller, identity of a service, uh, and so on. And uh, the former model was, every time you have your customer credential type, you derive from I, claim princi uh, so from I principle. 
you create your own I coconut authentication system principle, and uh, you basically expose those functionalities. And the idea is good, because at least uh, you always have one principle. It always lives in the same place, which is in the current thread um, principle. And then you just upcast uh, and you do whatever. What's the issue with that model? The issue is that uh, it exposes at the code level details about the credential type you're using. Because of course, if you're using that class, it's in your code. And so it's not as flexible as possible. So what did we do for solving this? Well, we did exactly what I'm telling you not to do. <laughs> because hey, we are Microsoft. No, it was the right thing to do. We derived from iPrinciple to iClaims principle with the hope that this is the very last time that we have to do that. And then from now on, you can always use this uh, happy iClaims principle. This iClaims principle extends iPrinciple with uh, information about claims. Namely, we have uh, a collection of uh, iClaims identity. And what is iClaims identity? You guessed. It is actually one extension of iIdentity, which lives in here. So at that point, we just took whatever was in here, and we added the information, namely claims, and various other interesting things, such as, for example, the delegate, which we'll touch upon tomorrow morning in the active case. And we just have like a list of claims. And what are claims? Claims are just these simple property bug in which you have a pointer to the subject which owns all the claims, the name of the issuer which from where they come from. If like, I won't go into all the details, but the thing that is most important is that you have a claim type, role, group, name, email address, hair length, whatever. And value, which, uh, of course, reflects the value, potentially value type. So if this one is a date time, I can tell it. If this is uh, like a spending limit, this could be a decimal, whatever. There's a lot of other stuff I'm not showing because uh, like that's the core. That's the basic way of doing uh, business. And how do we actually consume that? Very easy. Those two lines are precisely the lines that you would write in a traditional .NET system, in which you would acquire the principle, which in this case we are casting to iClaims principle, and from that we just extract the identity. In the iClaims principle, we have a collection of iClaims identities, but vast majority of the cases, you have just one. At that point, if I want to know something about my user, I just use this uh, Neat syntax. How many of you know what is link? Some. Okay. For everybody else, link is one extension to the uh, C sharp language, which basically allows you to mix imperative statements with uh, T-SQL like uh, relational uh, um, commands, so that you can query, literally query, in uh, in memory structures using uh, the syntax as opposed to do classic uh, nested for each uh, and stuff like that. So here, I'm just extracting the age of my user. And as you can see here, I have absolutely no clue of uh, the method that was used for authenticating the user. I have no idea. I just need to know something about my user. I have a question about my user I need to answer for my business. I can do that uh, in complete 
independence. So you see why I'm saying that this may be the last time that we derive from my principle. Because here we have all we need, regardless of the system that was used for authenticating. I'm sorry? Why do we enforce the URL structure on the claim type? So the question is, why do we enforce the URL structure to the claim type? Well, the tradition is to use a URI, so a universal resource identifier. So the way in which uh, we identify a claim is by a URI. Then, in fact, you can see in this form, but you can see it also in the URN form. So URN, semicolon, and something. So there is not a strong, like here, potentially you can write whatever. But uh, it's simply that uh, traditionally, if you look at the various online catalogs of uh, claims and similar, they are all in a URI format. It's also a nice way of uh, making them hierarchical so that uh, you can take a snapshot of whatever is one situation, for example, of one specification, and then gather them all under one namespace. So it's the same idea of a namespace in XML in general. Yes, sir? Yes. The question is, uh, is there a set of uh, constants that you can use uh, uh, tied to some standard body or similar? Yes, there is. Is uh, not uh, like in naming and not tied to the standard body, but uh, we do have uh, a couple of um, constant uh, collections where you can actually just make like claim type dot role. Like here, I just made these for making explicit that it can be whatever, but yes, we definitely have it. Great. So in the end, what you can do with Windows Identity Foundation, like we have after all this theory, what we are going to see, you can definitely handle authentication. That's something that you just outsource. You show it out. And the nice thing is that you do it via standard protocol. So you can interoperate. You can do it uh, cross-platform. You can do it knowing very little about your identity provider apart from the address. Then you can, uh, of course, uh, have a projection of your uh, actual business relationships. Like if you are in partnership with somebody, you can represent that with a federation and then actually take advantage of that even in your IT system. You can manage multiple sources. That's to say that if you, you have multiple partners, you can isolate your application from the issue of picking one or the other. So we can make that happen automatically for you. And as we have seen in our case, you can basically take whatever account, uh, account provider, slap in front of it a facade, and then reuse both identities everywhere. So really, really useful. You can, of course, do authorization. So you can fold back on the traditional RBAC model if the claims that you are exchanging are roles. Roles are a special case of claims. Or you can do something more advanced. You can do claims-based authorization. For example, you can have like uh, spending limits, and you can actually take decisions according to if the call is going beyond that spending limit or not. You can have age threshold. You can have any logic that you want. And then you can also, of course, handle user attributes, as has been observed before, the end of provisioning. Not really true, because of course, complex systems You'll always have to do some provisioning, but now, finally, there are cases in which you don't have to do that. The interesting part is, uh, with claims, 
all these uh, kind of blends together. I like to say that uh, adding claims is like uh, having uh, added, uh, having moved from the Roman style numbers to the Arabic numbers. You can do the same math, but uh, with uh, Arabic numbers, it's really, really, really easy. While instead, uh, try to calculate a Fourier transform using Roman numbers. I am unable to do basic multiplications with the Roman numbers. It's really complicated. Instead, with claims, you have a now a much more natural way of describing systems. So you can do the same as before, but in a more natural fashion. And so it's just clearer how to deal with certain problems.